What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. In today's episode, we welcome our first guest, the Reverend Yolanda Norton, a Hebrew Bible scholar and the founder of the Beyonce Mass. I am so grateful to Yolanda for stopping by the pod and sharing a bit about womanist thought and theology, the origins of the Beyonce Mass, and understanding it as a womanist worship experience rather than an attempt to make Beyonce a deity. What else is happening today? Well, we're going to introduce a brand new segment that I think we're going to call Church Announcements. So go on and sit down and linger a little while. Grab your tea, grab your coffee, and Joe Bailey's if you like. Whatever you do, just stick around and let's get into it. Hey, Katie. Hi there. <laughs> well, what was that? <laughs> hey there. I don't have any idea. It was hey and hi. Hey there. Hi there. Okay, that was cute. That was was that how y'all said it in the Midwest? I, I don't know. I, it's like a blend. <laughs> what's up, Sam? What's up, my nigga? I, 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 what's up, Brandon? What's up, brother? I don't mind if you say my nigga. I listened to a Tana Hesse Coates uh, clip recently. Have you seen a little clip floating around with Tana Hesse's Coates? I, I did. I did. That was I good. Did. It was so good. It's like this ain't your word, so we can say it. You can't. You don't even like him, and it was good. Don't do that. Don't 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 tell people I don't like Tana Hesse Coates. I just think he has a particular audience. It is not me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, I love Tony Hesse for his audience. But I did like the clip because I think what he was trying to highlight is like white people that feel like you want to say nigga and you can't say it. Ultimately, it's because you think that you own everything. Yes. But I invented the word. What you mean I can't say the word? Right. (laughs) That was brilliant. That was brilliant. You mean to tell me white people think they own everything? (laughs) Hmm, There's a new thought. You hadn't thought about that before? (laughs) I never came across that. Hmm. That's why I say that we are not his target audience. <laughs> so as you know, we've got the Reverend Yolanda Norton with us today to share about womanism and the Beyonce mask. But before we get into that, we want to introduce a new segment, a new tradition, if you will, that we're going to call Church Announcements. So basically, this is just a chance for us to talk about what's happening in the world. We've gotten a few emails in the last few weeks about current events and people wanting us to talk about what's happening. You don't even check your email. <laughs> <laughs> This is not necessarily a political podcast. It's not a pop culture podcast. I guess there is a way in which it's a commentary. But the main thing is we don't want to spend entire episodes dedicated to talking about current events or politics. But we do want to go ahead and give you some of what you're asking for. So we're going to frame that as church announcements. And we hope that you enjoy it. Send an email to holyshit at theolatmedia.com and let us know how you like it. Well, good morning, Church of Holy Shit and the Temple of All Saints and Aints. If you would open your bulletin. Church of the Holy Shit. The Church of of the Holy Shit. (laughs) And the Temple of All Saints and Aints. All of them. So here's the first announcement. Last week, the world watched in surprise as First Lady Meghan Markle and Bishop Harry, I don't know his last name. Is it Markle? Bishop (laughs) Harry Markle. What's the Queen's last name? Elizabeth. Uh, Harry Elizabeth. So First Lady Meghan Markle and Bishop Harry Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) They sat down with the chair of the mother's board, Lady O, the one, the only, Oprah Winfrey. And they spilled all the tea about what's been happening in the royal family. Did y'all watch? Uh, Yes. It was something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have many words for it. What you mean? Did you actually watch it, Sam? Are you lying? I watched it, but I, my reaction is similar to some of Oprah's reactions, where she was just like her mouth open, like, <laughs> like what? They did what? You know, like some of the stuff, some of the oh my gosh, 
yeah, it was it was tea. But like also, how was she surprised by some of it? It was surprising. I think it was surprising. Sometimes you're not surprised by shit white people do. And then you can be, you're not surprised that white people thought this way, but you're absolutely surprised that they accosted someone, that they spoke this out loud, mm. that they were comfortable enough to say certain things. And so I think that's what Oprah was like. They, they said this shit. I know they thought it, right? but they said this stuff to you. It was real regal, like royal bullshit. Like that's what made it so surprising. Like y'all got all these gold crowns and shit and y'all still doing this kind of racism? This is like, what color is the baby going to be? <laughs> How dark? How dark is the skin going to be? How dark is the baby's skin going to be? Right, you right. got the whitest black person, <laughs> phenotypically. That heifer can pass. Yeah. <laughs> I think she got freckles. Like, yeah. She has all the freckles, all the light white skin. I'm just saying, you got the whitest black person in the world. Do you not know how this works? It's as if they thought that she was going to reach back in the gene pool and make the baby black as me. Like, come on, queen. And that she said it wasn't Queen Elizabeth, but... I don't know. They say it wasn't Queen, but they're going to protect the queen. They are. Oh, I was just clear where Piers Morgan, like, they had, he had almost had a, a baby on Good Morning Britain because people were coming for the queen. And he was like, don't you speak against the queen. Mm-hmm. Go save the queen. He literally got up and walked off of his own show because he could not take anyone criticizing the queen. Yep. He did. Then he got himself fired, though, too. Off his own show. His, his own, own show. show. If, that's, a, that's like me trying to fire one of y'all off your own show. It's because in one day they had 40,000 complaints against Piers Morgan called into the Good Morning Britain. Wow. 40,000. So I guess that is another announcement. So Minister of the British Airways and the chair of the I Wish I Were Simon Cowell fan club, Piers Morgan, he's mad and he's big mad, y'all. And he wants the entire church to know that he is done with all of you. He wants his name taken off of the membership role. After the Oprah interview with Bishop Markle and First Gentleman Harry, <laughs> Pierce had something to say about Meghan making the world think that the royal family was a bunch of racist assholes. He got so mad that he refused to hear a counterpoint from his biracial co-host, also known as my baby daddy, Alex Beresford, <laughs> with his fine self. Have y'all seen Alex? I believe I have. I don't know who you're talking about. I mean, he's hot even for a lesbian. That's a fine man. Alex, if you're listening, I know you got a whole white wife and a whole biracial baby. Be careful because the queen might ask you how dark your babies are going to be if you have any more. But if you ever want to step on the other side of the pond, I'm here to welcome you with open arms and I'll make sure that you have the best welcoming party ever. (laughs) But anyway, as Sam already noted, Pierce walked off of the set and said he refused to hear anything else and he was eventually fired from his post on Good Morning America. So if you would like to join the Good Morning Britain News Ministry, please know that Minister Morgan is no longer the ministry contact. In other news, as members of the Georgia Baptist Tyrian Church, we would like to declare the pulpit vacant. And by the pulpit, I mean the Georgia State Legislature. If you haven't heard, members of the Georgia House and Senate are advancing H B 531 through the state legislature. This legislation entails drastic changes to voting. To be clear, by changes, I mean significant rollbacks on voter protections and restrictions on specific practices and traditions that will pose considerable challenges to black voters. This is some bullshit. It is. It is some bullshit. It is. I'm really kind of over it. The House has already passed it. So we're recording this uh, a week, uh, the Friday before this episode airs. And so the House passed it last night and it is likely the case or that the Senate will pass it soon as well. There are really no roadblocks or ways to stop this. Um, Let's talk about some of the things that are in the bill. Katie, what did your people pass? (laughs) 
people, my people took away are trying to take away Sunday voting. They're eliminating um, some of the days for early voting. They're shortening that time. They're requiring reasons to get an absentee ballot and multiple identification for absentee ballots. So with the weekend voting, that means that souls to the polls, which mm-hmm, is a mm-hmm. long-standing black tradition wherein black folks go to vote. Like churches be excited about the offering on souls to the polls Sunday because you get a bigger offering and you actually have the polling place in your church. You're gonna connect it to the offering. You're gonna do that. I think that's the primary reason people are agreeing to do it. <laughs> Let's be real. Come on. It's always about the offering of the black church. I can't stand you. Show me where the lie is. Please show me where the lie is. <laughs> You know, this this bill is so sinister. It's very apparent. They're trying to stop voting. In a lot of the black districts, the lines are extremely long. People stand in line for hours. They have put in this bill that it will criminalize handing out water and food to people who are standing in line to vote. So you want us to starve and be thirsty? I think it's evil at its core. Yes. It's evil embodied. Absolutely. And I think it merits like further discussion. So we might have to put this into the next episode because I think um, there's a lot here. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get too mad in the middle of this episode because we still got to interview Yolanda. And I just, I want to not go in that angry because it makes me real mad. But what y'all need to know today in these church announcements is that we, members of the Georgia Baptist Tyrian Church, uh-huh. are officially declaring the pulpit vacant. The pulpit is open. Mm-hmm. Katie, do y'all do that in the Presbyterian Church? What they know? We do don't. they know? I was about to say, you got to say what that means, the pulpit vacant, because they like what that means. So when you declare the pulpit vacant, you basically are ousted in the past. He out. Oh, you can't, you can't oust pastors in the Presbyterian Church. Some of them need to be, but you, <laughs> it ain't that easy at the Presbyterians. I got a list of people who need to be done. I'm going to start calling that out. <laughs> the best pastoral outing I've ever seen involved a pastor who had no idea it was coming because the pastor had been doing so many corrupt things that he thought he was inculcated from any of the church's structures. And so he was teaching Sunday school one morning. He had shut down all Sunday school classes because he didn't want people teaching things that he wasn't aware of. And he had one Sunday school class in the sanctuary between two services. And Sunday school had been empty for weeks because didn't nobody want to hear him talk. But this week, the church was packed during Sunday school like it was 11 o'clock service. Pastor gets up to start teaching a Sunday school lesson and then in process the deacons from the back of the church, the entire deacon board. Wow. It was a charade, baby. It was the best black church drama. They church conference. They processed from the back doors to the front, stood in front of the pulpit and hollered, Pastor, insert name here, we are declaring the pulpit vacant. And they had the police on site to escort him off the premises and take his keys. Oh, wow. I said, that's good black church drama, honey. Wow. I feel like we should do that in the Georgia State Legislature. Yes. We should just process in, block (laughs) off the whole place and be like, we are declaring... The legislature vacant and Kim Jackson is going to be our new speaker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's going to go over real well for us. So last announcement, church. We are glad to report that the senior citizen ministry, the entire senior citizen ministry has been fully vaccinated. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, somebody. Can can somebody say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I just got a note from Sister Johnson. And if you don't know, Johnson is a black name. I just got a note from Sister Johnson, and I need to redact that announcement. All white members of the Senior Citizen Ministry and their children and their grandchildren are fully vaccinated. Oh, that makes sense. And they've gone to the historically Mm -hmm. black neighborhoods of which they are scared. 
and went to their hospitals, our hospitals, that they refuse to visit any other time and demand that the city Mm -hmm. closes. And they've taken the vaccines from those sites and they've signed their children up for all the test vaccines for $600 that they don't actually need. Sister Johnson reports that around 10% of the black single citizens in the church are vaccinated, even though they are overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. willing to get the vaccine in spite of what the news is saying about Black fears around vaccines. Right. So that's right. the act. Sorry, I had to redact that. Th- sorry, thank you, okay. Sister Johnson. Whose dog is barking? I just want to know whose dog is. It's barking. one of the senior citizens with the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> one of the white ones. <laughs> But in all seriousness, vaccine rates are picking up. If you aren't aware that it's happening, um, there are vaccination sites in most states now, and the system is sort of coming online. And we just want to encourage you all to consider getting the vaccine. If you are a Black person, make sure that you are being proactive about your health, being proactive about your safety and prioritizing your safety and seeking out whatever resources are available. Uh, The pastor of the United States, Joe Biden, has said that he wants everybody vaccinated by July the 4th. So in light of the church anniversary, which we still can't have because of COVID, we are going to have, along with the United States, a July 4th celebration and a church picnic in the backyard when we all can get vaccinated. Please, please, please consider getting vaccinated. Don't stop and uh, second guess things because of which vaccine it is. You've probably, you may have heard this in other places, but we just want to encourage you to get whatever vaccine is available. If you go and they do Johnson & Johnson, think about it this way. It's one and done. You ain't got to go back. You ain't got to follow up. And the efficacy has already been tested against some of these new variants. And you ain't going to die. You ain't going to die. Get that vaccine. Don't wait for Moderna. Don't wait for Pfizer. Please, if you get Pfizer, don't say you want Moderna. Get whatever they're going to stick in your arm. Get your card and stay safe. Amen? Amen. 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 Back in our church, Brandon, I know you might know about this. Katie probably does not. Not because she's white, but because she's Presbyterian. They usually, when somebody got up to start an announcement, whether it was a welcome or announcement, do you know what they would say, Brandon? First giving honor to God. First giving honor to God. Who is the head of my life. Now, see, I'm from the country. Who is the head Uh of my life? God ain't just anybody. Past the first lady. To the pastor, to the first lady, to the deacons. The pulpit guests and friends. Everyone in their respected places. And then we can go on and, and with our announcements. Katie's looking like, what, what, the, what the hell is all that? There's protocol in the church. You got to do that every time. You don't just get up there and start talking. Y'all be acting like y'all the only ones with polity. You got to do this if you're going to get up in the black church. When you start walking to the front of that church. You got to give honor. You got to say, first, mm. giving honor to God who is the head of my life. What's always funny to me is when that like makes its way into the award shows because white people get up there at the awards, at the Oscars, and stuff. Like, oh my God, oh my God, I cannot what you say. I'm not prepared. Oh, thank you so much. Oh my God, I have notes. I have notes. I need to read my notes so I don't forget to thank anyone. And the black pope. First giving honor to God. Who's the head? Ha, shut up. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like they've they been living like hell all their life and talking about first giving honor to God. But I'm with it. Because I, I think we probably in the same boat as them. It like got a, it's like the tip drill video or something. It's like the worst <laughs> thing that could be getting an award for. They be like, I want to thank God for this for this video. You be looking out, dude. Without the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so this concludes this week's church announcements. Please govern yourselves accordingly. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear from my friend, Yolanda Norton.
What's up, fam? This spring, Theolab Media is excited to bring you two brand new podcasts. The first is Healing Jephthah's Daughters, hosted by Lisa Weaver. The Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver. Lisa M. Weaver. I can give you a title. Go ahead. Now, I can give, I can give some, some titles. Give, it to, give, give her a title. The mo- <laughs> give her a title. Give her a whole title. Come on. The most, the most holy, uh-huh. honorable, reverend, mm. Apostle, mm. Bishop, and Doctor, uh-huh. Reverend Lisa Weaver. Uh-huh. Ashe. The second podcast is How to Live When You're Afraid to Die. Natalie Faria will host this new pod. You got to give her a title, too. What's her title? What's her? I feel like if it's about death, she should be over the funeral home. Oh, okay, okay. That's like the Reverend Dr. Bishop. Paul Bearer. Paul Bearer. No, no, no. Undertaker. Undertaker. Uh, <laughs> That's the Undertaker. <laughs> you know, the most important question uh, when black folks died back in the day was, who got the body? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Let me tell you how ignorant black folks are. We are always planning for our deaths. My daddy, recently at a funeral, family funeral, the person that was holding my uh, relative's body did a wonderful job. And black people always comment on the body. Always. I couldn't be there physically to view the body. They, they FaceTimed me. And showed me the body talking about now y'all you see you see how he looked. He she looked look good. Look at his hair. They got it. They cut his hair down because it got right. long because of COVID. Mm-hmm. They did a good job. He, done, he, he, he looked he looked like himself. Lord have mercy. That's the most important thing. You got to look like yourself if you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because we ain't gonna you go somewhere you don't look like yourself. You are gonna hear about? It. Don't send me over there to the Johnsons now because I don't know who he looked like. That's what my daddy was saying. That's what he said to the funeral home director. He said, now you've done a real good job. We appreciate you. You're going to see a lot of us coming back here now. And I'm like, but no, that's not a good thing to say. She's the person who receives your body when you die. You don't want her to see a lot of us going forward. But he was committed to that. And he called me and let me know that he updated his will to make sure that his body went to this person. That's right. That's, that's, that's important. It's as important as a plot. Natalie will host this new pod. You can learn more about each podcast by visiting theolabmedia.com. If you'd like to support the Holy Shit Pod and these new projects, you can visit patreon.com forward slash theolabmedia and sign up to be a patron today. Because God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Yay. Because God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Katie, okay, Katie. <laughs> Come on, Katie. You better know, girl. You better know. Do y'all sit in the Presbyterian church? Uh, it's part of the, yeah, every once in a while. Do y'all ever cheer? Y'all be like, a, give me a J. J, because that's a cheerful giver when you start cheering. Okay, no. Y'all do that? that was, it was only one church. We didn't do that in <laughs> they were, Every single Sunday, they would do that. And it would spell Jesus. What does that spell? Jesus. What does that spell? Jesus. Because God wow. loves what? A cheerful giver. Give as little as $5 per month or as much as $1,000. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media. All right. Let's get back into it. Do that one time. Uh, Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media. All right, let's get back into it. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media. All right, let's get back into it. <laughs> you so good. I'm so proud of you. As noted in the intro for today's show, we are welcoming the one, the only, Reverend Yolanda Norton to the Holy Shit Pod today. I am really thrilled about this. You've already heard she's the founder and the curator of the Beyonce Mass, which is a womanist worship experience. You'll hear about that in just a moment. I first met Yolanda a year ago 
right before the world went to hell in a handbasket, I was attending the Beyonce Mass here in Atlanta, Georgia. It was hosted at Spelman College. Shout out to the Reverend Michelle Gidry, the Dean of Sisters Chapel at Spelman College. When we started the Holy Shit Pod, I just knew that Yolanda had to be one of our first guests because I'm so amazed by what she's been able to accomplish through the Beyonce Mass and the ways in which it's providing a fresh take on the church and spirituality for new generations. You can find out more about Yolanda online. Visit BeyonceMass.com. Follow Beyonce Mass on all social media channels. But I'm eager for you to hear directly from her. So without further ado, here's the interview. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good to see you again. Good to see you. You're so silly. I was going to ask, is anything off limits? I mean, you have editing capacity, right? So I can't. I do, and I'm going to send it to you before I publish anything. So. Yeah, I'm. So I feel like I'm going to say no, and if we get somewhere, I'm going to be like, "Don't you put that in there?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, like this is an abnormal interview, and in that I know you. And... I was like, he go act up, and so so I actually thought to. I've been trying to think what would be off limits, so I can tell him ahead of time, and I can't think of anything, but. I know it's coming. So <laughs> when we get there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reserve the right to be like, "Don't you put that?" You do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about the Beyonce mask. That's your claim to fame, from what I've heard. Now, I first heard of it through, um, I believe it was some old Baptist church women at the church where I was working at that time, and they told me that there was this new cult that was worshiping Beyonce. That sounds right. And I was like, "Oh my God, whoever this person is, doesn't not know what they have done." I did. I knew what I'd done. Um, You know, I think the name really catches people off guard. And sometimes it catches them so off guard that they can't encounter the content. Mm -hmm. But I've mostly found, not universally, but mostly found that when people engage the content, it shifts their perception of the work that we're doing. So the mass comes out of a class uh, that I teach called Beyonce in the Hebrew Bible, which is a womanist biblical interpretation class. And I teach a traditional version of the class which, in which we use literature. We use novels by Alice Walker and Sister Soldier and Gloria Naylor, right? Like we, we use novels and we pick up this Katie Cannon tradition about literary imagination and understanding that people often can't encounter documentaries or the news, particularly people who live in privilege, can't encounter these things and understand or internalize the ways that they are complicit in racism, sexism, and other isms, but when they encounter it in fiction or in the arts, it really gives them an intermediary mechanism to understand how the system operates and then understand how they're situated within the system. So I teach the traditional class, and I decided very early on that I wanted to develop a different one that was for those of us who are on the younger side of life, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Well, so what are the the modes of of art that younger people engage with? Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking particularly people under 40, and I thought music. So from that perspective, in thinking about who was a Black female artist, uh, singer, who everybody knows, whether you're mm-hmm. Black, white, male, female, non-binary, but whoever you are, who do you know? Whether you know the discography, you know who Beyonce is. Everybody. And so I like that component. I also really like it because white people are heavily invested in Beyonce. So invested, honey. So invested. 
And so I love the dynamic of the first day of class because all these white people show up to class and they're so excited. We're just going to talk about Beyonce. And the very first thing I do is play the Saturday Night Live clip Mm -hmm. that came out when the Lemonade album came out. You know, the day that white people discovered that Beyonce is black. (laughs) (laughs) You can see the students in the class be like, "Mm, this is not what I thought this class was going to (laughs) be. Like, Ooh, we're going to have to interrogate some real issues of racism, sexism classism, heteroaggression, all of these things. So the first assignment, real assignment of of that course was to build a worship service that told Black women's stories, that centered Black women in God's work in the world. And uh, because of the name of the class, let's do that in ways that don't adhere to tradition. But rather than picking up a hymnal or any kind of gospel discography, I want you to use her music to talk about this. And for me as a Bible scholar, it felt really authentic. One, because uh, I give this whole lecture that I won't bore you with now, um, but it's it's on the, the sacred versus the profane uh-huh. and talking about holiness codes and Leviticus. And part of what I talk about is that that, that sacred versus profane was about spatial theory, proximity to the holy of holies. So you could take a chair and sit it outside of the temple and it's profane. Mm. But if you move it to the center of the Holy of Holies, it becomes sacred. So you know you stepping down my pew, like you on my pew real hard right now because that's the holy shit pod, right? Like we're sitting here trying to ask questions about what does it mean to call one thing sacred and another thing profane? So I actually want the lecture. Like tell me more about these Leviticus codes. Well, so so the, again, the short is really uh, we have to understand that there wasn't as much investment in saying there is some, but there wasn't as much as we label of that's not sacred. This is is a uh, as close as you got to the center of the the temple. So you know, if we were, um, I have a lovely little diagram or picture that I show of the temple. And the closer you get into the temple, the closer you get into the Holy of Holies, you get to the tabernacle, the place that we're supposed to understand God's physical presence to be. So the people who could get closer in were more holy. The objects that were closer were more holy. So there's a different kind of stratification that's happening. And so part of my argument to my students has always been, we have labeled particularly black women as profane even as we have pushed them out of the church. Come on and teach us. <laughs> so, so what I want to do is push back and say, all of these things that make you uncomfortable, I'm moving them to the center of the sanctuary, to the center of the Holy of Holies. And so those things that you want to make profane, I am now saying are sacred. And so that's the work of the mess. <laughs> Jesus. It was funny when we first released the graphic for the Holy Shit Pod, my mother called me and was like, this is not okay. Uh-huh. And I said, why? And she said, because God is holy and you're calling God shit. Actually, I'm not. That's not actually the point. And like, I love this notion of pushing that which has been identified as shit, maybe, or that which is identified as unholy, unclean, unpure, unredeemable to the center of that which has been identified as holy. Like, that's that's some work. Yeah. So let's pause and let's play a little game. I know that we have a shared language, but I don't want to take for granted that listeners know what all of the terms we are using mean. So I'm going to call out a word or two that we've already used in this conversation. And I want to invite you to just let me know in like the simplest terms possible 
exactly what the word means. We always seem to get off track with one another. So maybe it will be more than a few sentences, but we'll try to keep it as short as possible. And we may do this a few times each time that we get to a place in the conversation wherein we've used some terms and we might need to just pause and check in. And that'll say listeners some time so they don't have to Google things that we're saying in case they don't know. And if you do already know, Just take it as a moment to check in with yourself and make sure that you still have an understanding of the terms that you use and we use in this conversation. So first term, (laughs) Beyonce, (laughs) for people who still don't know. (laughs) Sasha Fierce, Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. Give me the full name. Come on. (laughs) Um, Yes. uh, You know, the, the, the cultural icon, Black female singer with range and depth sometimes challenged in her acting but we were not going to do that today we <laughs> do that today i'm not a beyonce stan i'm still coming into the fullness of my gayness and so like i like teeter on beyonce i love all the music particularly the last few albums but we're not gonna talk about her acting because that will send me down a rabbit trail and the beehive is not coming for me today <laughs> listen i just feel like we need to celebrate the wholeness of an individual and say these are gifts these are not her that woman can sing Six ways to Sunday. Beehive, find her handle, not mine, because I didn't say it. Another term, <laughs> Hebrew Bible. Hebrew Bible uh, is what most people call the Old Testament. And it's a, we use the terminology Hebrew Bible just to acknowledge that it's sacred text for people outside of Christians. And so is there something bad about calling it the Old Testament? It's not bad, but it necessarily assumes that there's a New Testament, right? It's a relative term. And so to acknowledge that the scripture exists in a larger theological tradition, that it is sacred scripture for Jews and that for them, they are not necessarily drawing the same theological uh, lines that people who are Christians are drawing, as someone who teaches the text, it's important for me to honestly say Hebrew Bible because it, it names. So we can use those terms interchangeably and they have different political goals in mind. Like there's Correct. a way in which calling it the Hebrew Bible helps us to honor that text as distinct from the sacred text that Christians use. Right. And also could be a way of us thinking about interfaith and building solidarity between different religious constituencies. 100%. Who is Alice Walker? Alice Walker is the writer of The Color Purple and In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Uh, She's the one often credited with uh, giving definition to the term uh, womanist. She offers a four-part definition at the beginning of In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. How does Alice Walker define womanism? Because that is um, the next term that I think might be helpful for people to understand. So I have to uh, first clarify. She defines womanist, not womanism. And so, and for, for me, that's important because it's the definition of the person mm-hmm. or the people and not the mode of study. Yeah. Okay. So for a woman, she, this four-part definition talks about black girls as forced ripened, that black girls are often forced to age prematurely. And it talks from a perspective of the way that black girls are often called womanish for acting too grown for their own good or for their age. So that's... That's one piece. She talks about um, Black women as being universalists, being invested in the whole of humanity and being participants in the whole of humanity, except for when we need to withdraw for our own health. Mm -hmm. Black women is loving love, loving dance, loving music. So the robustness with which Black women encounter life. And then her fourth part of the definition is to say that uh, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Yeah. And so the 
uh, women of scholars have added to that the the disclaimer that we are a deeper shade of purple because everybody doesn't get what that means. Yes, <laughs> even though it's kind of clear, but we are deeper, more right. complex, more nuanced, more rich. Yep. Right. So, Sister Soldier, you mentioned as well. Uh, tell me about Sister Soldier and how that's uh, related to womanism or how she is related to womanism. So, uh, Sister Soldier, uh, the rapper turned author of The Coldest Winter Ever, also turned political activist, engaged in the controversy uh, in the early to mid-90s with Bill Clinton about depictions of Black women and Black people uh, in welfare context and the ways that poor and offering a critique of how Bill Clinton and the Clinton administration described poor black people. And so I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say this is a soldier identifies as a womanist. And for me, that's important because agency matters. Yes. Um, but I, I include her in the, as a, as a woman, a scholar, I include her as a part of the treasure of black women's wisdom that we draw from. That's good. So Katie Cannon is another name that we've already heard. Who is Katie Cannon? Katie Geneva Cannon. Katie Geneva Cannon is... Call the full name. Yes. The first black woman ordained in the PCUSA. Uh, one of the first black female scholars. A womanist ethicist who uh, taught mostly at Temple University and Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond. What people often don't know is that she started her PhD program in Hebrew Bible, went through coursework and comprehensive exams, and wanted to do a dissertation on the prophets as precursors to Black prophetic preaching, and was told by her white advisor that that was not a substantive biblical dissertation. And so she had two choices, find something else or find a different discipline. Mm. So she had to start over in her program, and that's how she became a womanist ethicist. So for me... As someone who studied with Dr. Cannon, who took classes with her, and as someone who lives in the legacy of being a, a Black female biblical scholar, we talked about like the fight that I would have to fight trying to enter the Holy of Holies in the academic yes. field. Um, and so she just, you know, the world lost a light when, when Dr. Cannon died because she just was this source of like a gentle, profound mother wit. We have more terms to discuss, but I want to push to there for a second. So, like this notion of the Beyonce mass and womanism or womanist thought more broadly being pushed to the center of the space and mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible, that being pushed to the holy of holies. Mm-hmm. Like, so what does it mean for you as a black woman in the academy and the church? to forge your way into the sector that is Hebrew Bible. For those of you who are listening in the academy, in religion, because religion it can be perceived as being like the playground <laughs> of the academy, there's a hierarchy that we impose on ourselves with the people who study the Bible being at the center, the people who study theology and ethics being at the next rung out, and then people in practical theology, pastoral care, preaching, homiletics, things along those lines, being in the outermost rung. And so when I was in seminary, we didn't have no black people in the Bible era. Correct. And how many black women have PhDs in any sort of biblical studies at this juncture? Um, I want to say somewhere between 100 and 200. So not many. No, there's thir- I know that they're about, they're 30 something in uh, Hebrew Bible. And I mean, what's fascinating about that is there's 30 something in Hebrew Bible. There are less than 10 of us teaching full time. Wow. So like, what was that? I mean, was that for you 
in selecting that discipline, was it kind of pushing your own way into the Holy of Holies? Yeah, I like a good fight. I'm, I've always been textually oriented, I think, because I didn't grow up self-identifying as Christian. Culturally, I would have, because I'm a Black woman from the South, and so you, you, you know what to say. But internally, I would not have identified till, uh, as a Christian until I was 18. So my real encounters with Scripture were as a young adult. Hmm. And so it's a different thing. When you grow up in the church and people say to you something about there being one creation story— you learn to internalize those stories. But yeah. as a young adult, when you're trying to learn to think critically anyway, when that frontal lobe is forming, yep. and you look and you say, well, there, I see two different things. And people in church say, no, 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 it's the same thing. It doesn't hold the same weight. So my encounter with Christianity and my encounter with the Bible was always an encounter with a hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm. Always like, how do we make sense of this in real life? rather than ignoring the tensions and the complexities. Yep. So that was always there. But when I had a choice to make between Bible, ethics, and homiletics, which were the choices I was trying to figure out when I finally yielded to the idea of going into the academy, I thought, well, you know, I do like a good fight. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go agitate some white folks who don't think that black people should be talking about the Bible. So I was raised in the church, real good black and Baptist kid, and then um, went to seminary in my young adult years and served in pastoral ministry and still serve in some form of pastoral ministry, although it's in a very non-traditional way. I still do identify with the label or the uh, sort of call of being a pastor, even though I, I, I just, I'm certain I understand that more expansively than I ever did initially. I have a hard time understanding how people get to be the age of 18, 21, 30, and all of a sudden they encounter Christian theology, Christian thought, a church, and they decide to become a Christian. So what were you before you became a Christian? And then why did you become a Christian? Would you still identify yourself that way? Yeah, absolutely. I would identify myself that way now. So I will say, again, if you had asked me what I was growing up, being a Black woman from the South, you know people are going to ask you who your parents are, what they do, and where you go to church. Yep. And so I would have answered the church question by saying that I was Baptist. My grandfather was a Baptist deacon, but for myself, I was not smart enough to be able to give language to this. I had too many theodicy questions. Mm -hmm. And what is theodicy? Theodicy is this question of like how God's justice works. That's an oversimplification, but I think for these purposes, this is what is God's justice? And so for me, I'm constantly looking at the world and saying, if racism is real, how is God real? If child abuse is real, how is God real? Nobody could give me a real answer to that. So I thought, well, this is all fantasy and fiction. Yeah. And so, gosh, I was, yeah, 18. And it was the summer after my freshman year of college. I was back in Richmond, Virginia, where I went to high school, middle school and high school. And I was working for the YMCA, which I had done all through high school, but I transferred to a different YMCA to work with the woman who had been my boss at the first YMCA. Because this woman, Beverly Jeanette, had so much uh, faith in me, she put my 18-year-old self in a supervisory role. And I was working with this team of other staff on this children's summer camp, and they all went to the same church. And so every week on Friday, they were like, you come to church with us on Sunday? You come to church with us on Sunday? And I would roll my eyes and whatever. Finally, to get them to shut up. 
I said, I'll come one Sunday. Don't ask me again. I'm going to come this one Sunday. And this is a black church. This is a black Pentecostal church. Just making sure. I, I, I was like, were you getting white Jesus or black Jesus this week? No, I was getting, I was getting show enough, speaking in tongues, black. Blickety black. Blickety black Jesus, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it's a hard swing from agnostic to Pentecostal. Right. Yeah. So I got this church, and I the first hour of church, and it was the first hour. I was like, "This is foolishness. I don't want any of this." And I to this day cannot remember what the pastor said, but I remember the feeling in the moment, feeling like, "Nope, we are no longer occupying our personhood." And the next thing I knew, I was ugly cry, snotting, walking down. <laughs> to answer the call of salvation. I thought, what is happening? What is happening? <laughs> um, and so I, I have been on this path since. Now, what I will say is, um, I didn't have the stamina to stay holiness in Pentecostal. That's just- that was my next question. Are you still holiness? <laughs> nope, nope, nope. I got tired. I got real tired. Um, and so I did Pentecostal holiness uh, for about four years. Like through college, the first year and a half after college, and then I just inched back to Baptist. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and and then, you know, it's a little less cardio in Baptist. Uh, cardio light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cardio light. But you know, the Baptists really do not know what to do with women, and so that I was licensed as a Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to my PhD program, I was done with the Baptist. And so I decided that meant I wasn't going to get ordained. And then the, the Christian church disciples of Christ caught a hold of me and would not let go. Um, and so pushed me into ordination. <laughs> you were forced into being ordained. I was, I was, I was forced. <laughs> <laughs> I yielded, but it, there was some pressure yep. um, from, from some people to go ahead and take that final step. Do you believe that what you're doing through the Beyonce Mass is creating a religious movement? Is it creating a new denomination? Is it cre- what, what, what is it? I don't think we're creating a new denomination. I don't, I don't know that I think we're creating anything. I think we are manifesting things that have been a part of Black culture and Black religion for centuries. Right, like, again, as a religious scholar, and particularly as a Bible scholar, I think about Vincent Wimbush, and when he talks about the four phases of Black people reading scripture, and he says, well, Black people who were enslaved when they first encountered the scripture rejected it. First encountered Christianity, rejected it, because they encountered it as this, like, white, oppressive context. But when they encountered it in the second wave, what they encountered was the ability to put their own religious ecstatic experiences from Africa, their own cultural experiences from Africa into conversation with the narratives that were being put in front of them in the text. So they immediately developed these other readings and these other ways of worship. And if we talk about black worship globally, you know, you can talk about Santeria in South America and in Central America. You can talk about Yoruba in Africa. You can even talk about Black Pentecostalism. There are so many expressions of Black worship that integrate cultural expression in with what we might, you know, if we, were, if we want to live in that paradigm, cultural with religious expression. And so 
that for me is why I didn't even think that much of it when I was creating this thing because it, it felt so congruent yeah. with with what black folks do. And so when it became this phenomenon and people were paying attention, the media attention and the pushback, I thought, have you not been paying attention to how black folks worship across time? I anticipated the pushback because I would be crazy not to. Right. But I also thought, I'm not understanding the nature of your argument. And as a scholar, the, the nature of one's argument <laughs> matters to me. So I don't, I don't do well with the like, this is demonic. Why? Because. Because why? Yeah. Because I fail students when they say those things. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it feels natural for me. It feels unique in the way that we are intentionally trying to create a space that's hospitable mm-hmm. for folks. But it also feels like what the Black church is. And it leaves me asking the question, of why does that hospitality rub people the wrong way? I mean, in some ways, what you're doing sounds very unchristian to the extent that Christianity seems to be defined as a somewhat inhospitable religion. Like if if you're going to become a Christian, you have to play by these rules. You have to play by um, these sort of general, or you have to agree to these sort of general principles. And if you are not able to do so, then it's not a hospitable place for you. And so would you say that what you're doing is something is in some ways a truer expression of the Christian tradition or just, or do you feel the need to even hold on to those labels in that way? I don't know that I feel the need to hold on to the the labels. I think it says something to me that we get so many people at the mass who are unchurched and that we've had so many profound statements from people who are unchurched about their experience of God. So we are unapologetically a service that centers Black women, Mm -hmm. period, right? I don't need to have conversations about BIPOC Black women. That's where I live. I say. But I was amazed by this white male, white gay male, who wrote um, an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle after we did the second mass, but the first kind of public mass. Mm -hmm. And he said, I went to the Beyonce mass and I found God. And he talks about feeling pushed out of the church because of his sexuality. And he talks about giving up on God because he gave up on the church. And he says, I don't know that I'll ever go back to church. But I also don't know that I'll ever give up on God again. And so the ability to, in some healthy ways, unlink the dysfunction of the church from the magnificence of God Mm. feels right for me. Yeah. For people, white folks, what is the way to build solidarity with women is without forcing yourself to the center of the conversation? Um, that's where my brain initially was. But as you were talking, I was trying to figure out a way to recenter black folks and black women particularly. And I think about talking to my mother about womanism. And I think about talking to my mother about Alice Walker. And there was a sort of fear response when I first talked to my mother about womanism. And particularly about Alice Walker and the color purple. I thought this was accessible. I was like, oh, you know, everybody knows the color purple. But they immediately went to the like lesbian love scenes, which are so vague. And I mean, they're not actually vague. They're actually kind of descriptive. But for what we know to be literature today, it's kind of vague. (laughs) It's not porn, people. But like there was a fear response to black women loving one another and loving one another's bodies in ways that were intimate. And but that wasn't the fullness of the story. So I'm trying to figure out, I think, for people like my mother who listens to the podcast and hates the fact that I swear periodically, love you, mother. But like if I'm scared of womanism or I've learned to fear myself, my body, my blackness, my femaleness, my wholeness, what's my starting point? How do I take the next step to start embracing myself 
and woman is thought as an extension of myself. You cannot be in solidarity with Black people, with Black women, if you do not spend a significant amount of time, energy, and thought interrogating your own white supremacy. You are not, um, just like there's no magical Negro, there is no magical white person. You are not the exception to the rule. You're not the one white person who escaped living into racism. You're not uh, the, the other white person that's not part of what's being talked about. Um, rather than trying to put on a dashiki and come live in my space, sit in your space and interrogate yourself and the people around you, be better white people. Um, and so that you think that you can escape your whiteness and that that will make you good and pure and holy is actually just a reification of your racism. So uh, that is the answer to the first question um, for me. For the second question, I think um, while I want people to at some point engage the terminology and the thought processes of womanist um, scholarship, it is more important to me that Black women learn to love themselves. And so, I mean, I think part of what makes people uncomfortable about the Seeley-Shug interaction um, is that Black women haven't learned to love themselves. Um, and so, and I don't, I don't want to erase the conversation about sexuality that is happening in the book. Uh, because that would be to misrepresent Alice Walker, to misrepresent uh, black queer women. And I don't want to do that. But I think we also miss something when we don't understand um, that their ability to love one another was a concrete manifestation of them learning to love themselves. Um, and that for me, is the core of what we need from womanism. The doors of the church are now open unto you by letter, or by Christian experience, or candidate for baptism. Stop with that, because that's how I got messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so early on in our conversation, we talked about what it means for um, Leviticus not actually to be about naming one thing as holy or naming another thing as unholy, but it's about the extent to which things can be holy based on their proximity to God. What does that look like for listeners? What does it look like to um, not think that just because somebody cusses, because somebody's having sex, or because somebody's drinking liquor, because somebody's doing any other things we've been taught are um, unholy, for the for not to be about behavior, not modifications, but about your proximity to Godness. Can you give me a a good Pentecostal closing to your sermon, just to let me know? Give, give me some hope now about these Leviticus codes. <laughs> so I guess I want to say two things about that. I think people need to. So what concerns me, what I haven't been able to make sense of about Christians is the same Christians who will say uh, the temple has been destroyed, the tabernacle has been busted open. And we are to understand God as, as no longer being boxed in are the same people who live into a boxed in theology. Um, and, and so for me, uh, we have to also start to understand that God does not solely operate in your grandmother's Bible or your Bible. God does not 
solely operate in your church building or the church building down the street or in any configuration of buildings. That part of the progression of faith, not just for Christians, but for people in the Judeo-Christian tradition is that God is present everywhere. And so you don't, we don't have the right (laughs) to judge who is in close proximity and close relationship with God. And so for me, that's what is what becomes important about developing different kinds of spaces, different kinds of ethos, uh, different kinds of community where people can tap into their relationship with God. From that perspective, I want to challenge people to stop being gatekeepers and stop thinking that you can adjudicate how and where and when God operates. As a Bible scholar, I, I always want to say, when you have decided where God is and how God operates, that is the highest form of idolatry. That's the sin, baby. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's, that's the false image. Yeah. Right? If we want to talk about covenant codes, we want to talk about we do that all day long. But God says, "Don't create a false image of me." And this idea that God is who you say God is, yeah, is idolatry. It's a false image. Yeah. So I could do this all day, literally do this all day with you. But for the sake of listeners, let's go ahead and wrap this up for now. And let's plan to talk again. Before you head out, I do want you to stick around for the Mourner's Bench segment and go ahead and put somebody on the bench when we get there. But before we do that, let's just take a quick break and we will be right back. I finally watched P-Valley. Y'all know what P-Valley is. So P-Valley is a sitcom. What the P stand for? Pussy. Okay. It's based off a play called Pussy Valley. I so wish people could see Katie's face most of the time. <laughs> I encourage you to watch it. It is some of the best television. I think they're ramping up the season too. But it's a whole bunch of strippers. The, uh, the owner of the strip club is a, a black gay man who does drag um, every night. And he has a team of strippers who um, strip and have a lot of fun. It's really great television. And I encourage everyone to watch it with their children. But at the end of the show of the first season he was sitting there and I think he said something like uh, he was praying to like the, the great drag queen upstairs or the uh, the ball he said he said the boss bitch upstairs I'm like okay you better create God in your own image like everybody else does <laughs> to the boss bitch upstairs we are praying that you would help us tonight to raise this money and get these dollars I was like okay pray because somebody needs their rent paid amen Yolanda, thank you so much for stopping by the pod and dropping these gems before you go. Can we ask a little favor of you? Because we have a little tradition around come these on, parts. Come on, Yolanda. We like to end every episode with a little segment we call The, the Mourner's Bench. I assume at some point in your ministerial journey through the Pentecostals and the Baptists and the non-denominationals and the disciples, you have experienced an altar call. Well, here, what we like to do is invite down to the altar or the Mourner's Bench anybody who has been extra racist, extra sexist, extra homophobic, or heteroaggressive, as you put it earlier, or just plain old stupid. So the time has come and the hour is nigh. It is time to go to the mourner's bench. Katie and Sam, show Yolanda how we do. I'm going to put on all white women on the bench. All of them, Katie. Um, I think <laughs> all of us. You know what? 
the reality is since we started feminism way back when and and ignored black folks and Latinx folks, we have You better pronounce that real hard. Latinx folks. <laughs> we have really not been listening. We have we need some time to sit down. We might need to bring a cushion because it's gonna be it's gonna be a long time sitting on that bench listening and trying to learn something. All white women, you are on the bench. And Katie is there with you, so you're not alone. Yes. You were not alone, dear. Don't fear. Katie is there with you on the mourner's bench. Sam, who's on the bench? Are we exercise good boundaries on this bench? Otherwise, there might be a lot of mixed kids because I'm putting all black men on the bench. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> Why are you like this? The queen, the queen is gonna be so mad. She's gonna be like, "Well, well what color are they gonna be? How dark are they gonna be?" <laughs> we can't have too many darkies in the royal empire. Oh, all black men are on the bench for very similar reasons that all white women are on the bench. It's sad to say that black men, at times, can be as toxic to black women because of the patriarchal systems and beliefs. It's been my experience, this thirst for power. In some instances, to be on the same level as white men, this this quest to be equal to white men leads to the oppression of black women. And they've got to be on the bench. Yeah. To be on the bench, learn humility. And I mean, and to use that imagery, imagery from you, Yolanda, like to make holy that which has been pushed away from the holy, to center black women and to not force black women to take up or inhabit space on our behalf but to just let black women be and exist and flourish in the spaces that they desire without positioning them in proximity to ourselves so that we can feel more holy or we can feel more righteous. I mean, I might suggest that none of y'all are after holiness. You're all after whiteness. Um, and I think whiteness is what we position at the center more than anything. And we all want to be as close to whiteness as possible. So that's what we're dealing with. And we are all on the bench. And I guess since y'all put white women and black men on the bench. I'm going to put white men on the bench, <laughs> starting with Piers Morgan. Yellow rant was really crazy and unacceptable. And what I don't appreciate about it is, about that rant is, you had an opportunity to actually engage in a tough conversation, a challenging dialogue, and there was no one attacking you. What my baby daddy was doing was trying to invite you to think about things differently and to participate in a new way of life and a new way of looking at the world. And as opposed to trying to protect this institution that is the royal monarchy, as opposed to trying to continue centering whiteness, white maleness, white Britishness, white Europeanness, he was just trying to say, hey man, the world is changing and you ain't really thinking about this. And you couldn't even sit your little white ass down and listen. So Pierce Morgan, you are on the mourner's bench and you're going to stay on the mourner's bench for quite some time. And I hope that these, uh, Trump-adjacent people, these MAGA-adjacent people who are now signing petitions trying to get you back on the show are also sitting here with you on the bench. And by I hope, I mean, I'm placing them here with you. If you have signed a petition in support of Pierce Morgan, I want to put you on the bench and I want you to sit here for a while and think about your actions and don't get up until we say you can get up. So Yolanda, you got a flavor for it now. Who are you putting on the bench? 
You want a single person or a concept? It can be a concept, a group. It can be an inanimate object. Anything can go on the bench. It can be foolish or serious. I think I want to put the church on the bench. Damn. Yes. <laughs> We've been inching our way to this. First, it was like the Presbyterians. Then it became the Episcopalians. Then it became the Baptists. You're just going to go ahead and just take us all the way there in the third episode. Okay. The whole church. Yeah. Yeah. I want to put the church on the bench. And I, I, I want to say like, I need you to get out of your orthodoxy. I need you to let go of your tradition. I need the church to let go of its white supremacy. I need it to let go of its xenophobia, its patriotism, its patriarchy, its heteroaggression, all of those things. I need you to get on the bench and figure out how to reconnect with a gospel message that is about the love and the affirmation of the whole of humanity. The whole church yes. is about to be on this bench. I like that. Yes. So we put in, it sounds like the bench is just overflowing right now. We might need to start a new segment where we start to um, like say who's getting off the bench because I, it feels like the majority of the world is on the bench at this juncture, but we ain't going to go there yet because we still need folks to sit here on the bench. And I don't know if anybody who's been placed on the bench between this podcast and the last one is worthy of getting off yet. So everybody is still sitting right here in the church of holy shit and the temple for all saints and ain'ts. Tell folks where they can find you. Uh, for now, you can find us at www.beyoncemass.com. We're about to launch a new larger nonprofit. So keep an eye on the website, the Beyonce Mass website, and our Facebook page, which is just uh, Beyonce Mass, and our Instagram, because within the next month, we will launch the name and new projects and initiatives of the nonprofit. We can't get the name yet? We can't have a breaking story? Breaking news? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you did hear, you, but maybe you heard it here first that the nonprofit is coming. You did hear it here coming. first that the nonprofit is coming. So there's more coming from the Beyonce Mass folks. COVID-19 couldn't shut this down. Follow Beyonce Mass on Instagram, Facebook, and or on the web. Thank you so much, Yolanda, for being here today. I'm so grateful for the conversation. Thanks for having me. So you know, each week we like to end with an invitation. And this week, the invitation has already been given. If you heard me earlier, I said the doors of the church are open unto you. If you don't know what that means, because that's not a part of your culture, in my culture, that means that God has spoken and the church needs to say, amen. So just in case you missed the invitation, I'm going to say it one more time. The invitation for this week is this. Sit in your space. Interrogate yourself and the people around you. You cannot escape your whiteness. To try to do so would be to reify your racism. You cannot escape your maleness. To try to do so would be to reify your sexism. You cannot escape your sexual orientation. To try to do so would be to reify your heteroaggression. So sit in your space and interrogate yourself. And if you don't know what it means to do that, you can send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com because we like to be in conversation with all of you. And for black women, black men, queer black folks, able-bodied black folks, differently abled black folks, for all the black folks listening, I think the invitation for us is to stop making white supremacy an idol. Even as much as we may think we have everything figured out, there is still work to do. We still got to figure out how to stop making white supremacy an idol, and we have to figure out how to love ourselves. We have to figure out how to stop hating one another. Black men, our liberation is not dependent upon us keeping black women oppressed. 
black people, our liberation, our collective freedom is not contingent on making sure that everybody is heterosexual. We have to learn what it means to love ourselves. Because it's only then that we'll be able to love one another and stop seeking after white supremacy to love us. Sit in your space. Interrogate yourself. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you for listening. You know the drill. If this is your first time listening or you've just been ornery, hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with the pod. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. And we mean it when we say that we love hearing from you. Keep sending those emails, questions, and suggestions to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We'll be back next week with an episode focusing on the question, can white people be saved? Until then, peace. Honorary. That's how black people say it. Don't how you say it, Sam. Honorary. I think we say ordinary, but I've heard it. I'm like in in between honorary and ornery. So I'm like on, or, honorary. Or or honorary. Or, or what? Or honorary. <laughs>